Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Hey, welcome back to Politico Tech. Today is Tuesday, September 26th. I'm your host, Stephen Overly. The FTC's much-anticipated lawsuit against Amazon is expected to drop as soon as today. We know that the agency has been investigating the retail giant for four years, and that the lawsuit is likely to target several aspects of its sprawling business. But a lot still remains unknown. As reporters prepare to dig into the coming complaint, here are the top questions on my mind. One, what is the FTC's argument for why Amazon is a harmful monopoly? There will almost certainly be multiple reasons given, but I'll be curious to see how creative the agency will be in applying long-standing antitrust laws to a very modern business. Two, how many states have signed on to the initial complaint? A large number of states with both Democratic and Republican attorneys general would signal broad support for the case and lend greater credibility to it. And three, what can we surmise from all of this about FTC Chair Lena Khan's legacy? On the one hand, she came to public attention after writing a law school paper about Amazon's monopoly power. But the case will take years to resolve, long after she's left the agency. I'm planning to bring you answers to those questions as soon as the lawsuit is released. So be sure to come back here for that. But first, on today's Politicotech, we're going global. Last week's UN General Assembly displayed just how focused world leaders are on artificial intelligence. But it also raised questions about whether global institutions like the UN are really equipped to handle the sudden explosion in the technology's growth. Karen Kornblue says they aren't. She's a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund here in Washington and a former U.S. ambassador to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. That's the OECD. In our conversation today... Karen outlined obstacles countries will face in achieving global governance of AI. It strikes me that there are three buckets of things that people are talking about that we need to do with international AI governance. One is dealing with some of the near-term risks, transparency, bias, those kinds of things. The other that that a lot of the uh, company leaders are talking about is sort of the existential risks, you know, the really dangerous things that are um, analogous to a um, nuclear risk. And then there's a third bucket of things, which is how do we share research and how do we share tools so that there is more equitable access to some of the upside of AI and how do we fund some of those things? So um, I think where the UN falls is maybe in the second two buckets, What the U.N. has going for it is what the U.S. has against it. Everybody's a member, right? And it's a consensus. It's a a very complicated voting uh, organization. So you're not going to do anything that's controversial between democracies and authoritarians, for instance. That's not going to happen at the U.N., but it is a good place for the West, so-called, to be talking to the global South, so-called. How big of a limitation is that, where you do have kind of these different government structures housed within one institution. And so really some of the thorniest problems around global AI governance just can't really be worked out in that forum. Right. I think that's really true. I mean, and that's why, you know, just to shift away from the UN for a second, that's why the G7 
is working on these issues in their own process. The G7 is this much, much, seven countries, much, much smaller group of countries, much more like-minded. And they want to use as their technical advisors and the ones that work it out, the OECD, where I was ambassador, which has only 38 countries, again, considered much more like-minded. And just like the UN, the OECD's upside is its downside. It doesn't have enough members. It only has 38, but it's a place you can incubate. It's a place where, you know, rule of law countries come together. They have a similar approach and they're trying to start correcting for um, their over-exclusivity. Right now, Peru, Brazil, Argentina are in line to become members and Indonesia has just expressed an interest in joining. So then that becomes really interesting. But at any rate, that's a good place to incubate some of these policy approaches to the to the near-term risk, probably better than the UN. I also wondered if you might weigh in on President Biden's comments at the UN. He, when addressing the General Assembly, said the world needs to work together to be sure that it manages AI, that AI doesn't manage us, which struck me as sort of a pretty stark kind of warning or, or certainly a way of framing it. What, what did you make of those comments? Uh, yeah, I thought it was it was great. And he mentioned it very high up in his uh, remarks. And I thought it was, if you look at the structure of the speech, so he starts out and he goes through the need to reform a lot of these institutions. And if you think about his stated mission for his presidency, it's to show that democracy delivers. And I think he's been trying to do that at home. But on the international stage, a lot of these organizations, the World Bank, the IMF, the UN, the OECD really need reform for the new era. And uh, so I thought it was coming right after that, that he talked about AI. And I think AI is a real unique challenge for this whole system, the post-World War II system of global governance. It's a real challenge for all the reasons you know, not only can AI undermine a lot about democracies, But we don't really have the systems, as you said, to keep up with it and then to figure out how to put in place some standards that can help us, as he said, help make sure that it works for us. And I thought he was sort of challenging the world community. Like this isn't abstract that we have to reform. We really have to figure this one out. And it probably is going to require some new institutions and organizations. A new organization was created when money laundering was first a big issue, the Financial Action Task Force, that also is about, you know, making sure that the financial institution addresses issues of money laundering. I think when we come to TAC, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of scaffolding, you know, in in a lot. So the financial industry, it's a heavily regulated industry, right? So when countries came together and said, we want to do something about this, they had a lot of local agencies within domestic agencies within countries. When it comes to TAC, it's really been hands off in most countries. And so when these international organizations come together and they say, we're going to agree on standards, who's going to enforce it, you know, at the local level, at the domestic level? Because we don't have a lot of that scaffolding. So it's a, I think it's a double challenge. It's a challenge for these international organizations and it's a challenge for individual countries also to figure out what the enforcement mechanism is going to be. I think that's a really interesting point because, yeah, most countries are just domestically trying to figure out how they want to approach a lot of tech issues, including AI. So without any sort of domestic plan, how do you set a global agenda, right? Uh, That becomes really challenging. 
The the other issue you just spoke to, which I was going to ask about anyway, you know, candidly, this is coming at a time when some of these global institutions, we can say need reform, but part of that is they they seem weakened or, or perhaps not up to the moment. And, and even um, the UN General Secretary Antonio Guterres said, global governance sort of feels stuck in time. I'm curious with AI, and I don't want to overstate this, but because it is such a complex issue, you know, such a broadly consequential issue, I I mean, is AI potentially one of these things that either forces change or kind of breaks institutions that do seem weakened right now? Exactly. I think that's, I don't think you're overstating it. Either we step up to the moment, which uh, President Biden was urging us to do, or yeah, I think it could break the system. I mean, what we saw in the last decades with the internet and social media, I think it's hard for us to realize how much change there's been, good and bad, you know, to so many different industries. I mean, the travel industry is one you can think of automatically and the taxi industry and Hollywood and, you know, but labor, you know, the whole rise of the gig economy. I think that was a warm-up act for what we're going to see with AI. And so... What's the point of democratic governance? It's to make sure that humans uh, get to exert control over their environment. We're going to have a big test about whether we can uh, whether we can get more of the good and less of the bad than would just come out if you had just you know profit seeking companies unleashing whatever the next engineer comes up with. I mean, I think the engineers and the companies are saying, please, you know, tell us, use your governance and governments to tell us what we should be doing. And if we don't rise to the occasion, I think we could see change that makes the last few decades look like small change. The conversation, obviously, in these forums is not all doom and gloom and risk. Uh, There is conversation about the upside. Um, and Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And yeah, I just want to say one thing. Like one of the ideas that's been put out, and I think we have to look at like the recent experience with vaccines, you know, where governments did get involved, but it wasn't, it wasn't, in this case, in the vaccine case, it was to provide the funding and to provide the certainty and take out some of the risks. Right. Then the technology was unleashed. And in record, record time, we got these vaccines. And then the question is, how do we share? Well, how do we do a better job than we did in vaccines in sharing the fruits of technological innovation? But I think it's a great, so we have Gavi, which is this international institution that shares vaccines with less well-off countries. And I think we have to think of those kinds of things as models. Is it easier to harness those upsides for these global bodies with all these countries involved compared to, you know, agreeing on how to mitigate the risks? Yeah, exactly. So if you take those three buckets that I was talking about at the beginning, so I think I think you want to start with a smaller group of countries to do the ethical guidelines, like what's the transparency? How do we deal with the bias? I think you want bigger groups like the UN or an agency that could be spun off to deal with um, sharing the research and the tools. The hard one is how do you deal with these long-term existential risks? If you come up with some standards, the way it gets enforced is individual countries, you know, have to enforce it themselves. And then at the global level, you can do kind of auditing. You could, countries could shame each other if they weren't living up to the principles if you really wanted to enforce it, countries could say, well, we're not going to let your companies operate in our countries if you don't force your companies to follow these rules. That's not done that often. But in the case of the existential risks, you really need enforcement. We'll be right back. 
The Biden administration is moving forward with a slew of new regulations that put products like semiconductors, electric vehicles, modern healthcare technology, and clean energy at risk. Chemistry is essential to our modern lives, creating products to help foster a more sustainable and competitive future. The Biden administration must change its course and work with manufacturers on science-based policies that protect American innovation. Learn more at chemistrycreates.org. One of the geopolitical dynamics here I'd be curious to get your thoughts on is the divide between countries that already have, you know, technological advancement, already have economic power and those that don't. And, and, you know, we sort of talk about this divide right now in geographic terms, you know, separating the global south, for instance. And, and that's playing out just not in the UN, but in, in other institutions as well. How significant is that divide? And I guess, what's the big challenge it poses to coming to any kind of global consensus around AI governance? Yeah, <laughs> these are really small questions. All right. How much time do we have? <laughs> Right. So I was on a panel where we had a minister uh, from an African country and, and he, you know, he really made me think about these issues in a very, you know, immediate way. They have so many challenges to deal with, you know, debt rising with interest rates, climate change, adjusting to that. And he said, our people are saying, well, why are you talking to me about AI? We have too many things to deal with. He said, if, if we sit still while this is going on, you know, then we're going to be behind <laughs> even further. And so I think it puts an enormous strain on countries thinking about um, how are we going to participate in this revolution? How can we harness it to uh, deal with existing inequalities without having further inequalities? And I think there's a real responsibility of wealthier countries to to figure that out. I, and I do think the UN is a place that could start to have those conversations. But I think there's going to need to be funding, you know, and richer countries are not necessarily eager to provide more funding. They're not providing enough funding to deal with the climate crisis. So I think we're going to have to think about, is there some way of sharing in the fruits of um, AI and the benefits that it gives uh, to make sure that it's not, it doesn't create, a, you know, even more winner take all. The other geopolitical factor here, which can't be ignored, is China, which obviously, you know, we're, we've talked about a number of global institutions. China is only part of some of those. So and, and that's part of the reason why I think conversations at the G7, for instance, around AI might be be easier than than at the UN. How do you grapple with the fact that with China at the table, a leader in AI any sort of global unity just seems impossible. Right. No, it's a great question. Um, yeah, that's why I think you go to the, I mean, so the OECD and the G7, they were not popular a decade or two ago when we thought we had the end of history and everybody was friends. We went to the G20, which was the group of the 20 largest economies. And we said, well, we're all just going to work together to solve economic problems because we don't have any ideological problems anymore. And now that we're in this contest between democracies and authoritarians, these smaller groups are places where we go to work with countries that are more like us and to figure out how we're going to work together and trade together. And then we figure out, okay, now what do we do vis-a-vis -vis the authoritarians? That's why I think we're going to workshop some of these more immediate ethical 
protective, you know, of rights issues at places like the OECD and the G7. And I would hope we would create a new organization. We've called for something like a, we call it a technology task force, something like the International Energy Agency on this set of tech issues. But more broadly, I think part of the danger of doing those kinds of things at the UN is that China and Russia um, see a very top-down control approach for government. So when you look at China's AI, developing AI laws, they are going to register every single AI use with the government. They are going to impose social control using AI. I don't think we want to have the UN be a place that becomes an international tool for that kind of top-down you know, it would a it would hurt innovation, but more importantly, the social control aspect. We don't want to say it's okay for governments or international institutions to turn these technologies into tools of social control. You know, we've seen that in the internet. There's been decades and decades of pushing back against Russia and China and Iran from using the UN to turn the internet into a place that's controlled by individual governments. So if they don't like what somebody's saying on the internet about their governments, they can crack down more easily, they can censor, they can shut off the internet. Obviously, you're former ambassador of the OECD. You've been part of these conversations around digital governance uh, through past waves of technology. Is there anything that you think is missing from the conversation right now or the way that world leaders are sort of framing it when it comes to AI? Yeah, I think there's this instinct to have like a one-stop shop or a, a you know one size fits all, and you know AI is a big challenge, um, and we're going to need lots of different institutions with different members with different skill sets. Uh, so that's one thing, and then thing two is I think we're not thinking enough. I think we're thinking a lot about the existential risks. I don't think we're thinking enough about the thing you talked about, which is how do we make sure we get more of the upside of AI and how do we make sure we share the upside broadly? Huge issue. And I think um, there's a lot of upside to AI and let's make sure that we share it. And then this other messy issue about how do we deal with the short-term risks. Um, And it's messy in part because we don't have the scaffolding. This is a real challenge for all countries, for all these international institutions, and for democracies most especially. Fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on Politico Tech. Thank you. That's all for today's Politico Tech. Before you go, be sure to register for Politico's AI and Tech Summit, taking place tomorrow. I'll be hosting a special live episode of Politico Tech at the summit with Ann Newberger, the Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Tech. Register at politico.com slash AI Tech Summit. Music in today's show comes from the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior producer is Annie Reese. Our editors are Steve Heuser, Daniela Cheslow, and Louisa Savage. I'm Stephen Overly. I'll see you back here tomorrow.